This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gist news. It's Tuesday, December 18th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pascal. So there are a couple ways to look at the comments of Mick Mulvaney, the incoming White House chief of staff. A couple days ago, video emerged of Mulvaney saying of his new boss, I think he's a terrible human being. Today, audio, or late last night, audio emerged of Mulvaney saying this of his current and future boss. Should either of these people be, be uh, role models for my 16-year-old triplets? No. In an ordinary universe, would both of these people's past activities disqualify them from serving for office? Yes. But that's not the world we live in today. The world we live in today is either him or her. And for me, that's still the easy choice. So on the one hand, it is not great to have an employee say those words multiple times about the boss, to think that about the boss, to be very, very sincere that he does not like the boss on a deep, deep level. On the other hand, one of the main requirements of the job of chief of staff is to demonstrate realism, to assess the world accurately. And Mick Mulvaney certainly does that with those words. In fact, I was down on the Mick Mulvaney chief of staff job because another requirement of the job of chief of staff is that you accurately assess that which is possible and that which is not possible in order to get anything done. And once you have made the decision to work for Donald Trump, you give up any chance of ever getting anything done. So in other words, you have taken a job with no possibility of achievement and the very nature of that job is to achieve that which is possible. The White House Chief of Staff is a job you become unqualified for by the very act of you saying, I'd like this job. Oh, this isn't a free-floating, everything Trump touches turns to garbage type insult. There, There are some jobs within the Trump administration that it's possible for a person to fulfill, like trade representative. You can go out and trade with the world. You can get ripped off and make bad trades. It's not the good trade representative. It's just the trade representative. In fact, if you make bad trades, you are accurately representing the gestalt of Donald J. Trump. Energy secretary, you can do lots of favors for the energy industry. Indeed, that is what our current energy secretary does, job fulfilled. There are other positions we have to maybe squint a little and imagine uh, an extra word here or there, like secretary of education. Throw in the word thwarting, secretary of thwarting education. That's being done. And with labor, secretary of labor, I think the very Clearly implied word is stymieing, secretary of stymieing labor. Now, I do have to say about the Mulvaney tapes, they just surfaced, but they were sentiments expressed two years ago. They weren't leaked at a charity dinner taped by the waiter. They weren't, you know, a surreptitious recording uh, with maybe Chris Cuomo say. They were said in a public forum into a microphone. They were said on a podcast. Mulvaney knew he was on a podcast. The name of that podcast Crime town. <laughs> Seriously. Bagman. No, really. Criminal. It was criminal. Well, it was criminal, but it was the Jonathan and Kelly show popular in South Carolina. It was a two-year-old interview. Mulvaney was named to head the Office of Management and Budget in December 2016. He gave that interview in October 
2016. So two months passed between him saying Trump in a perfect world would be disqualified from the job and him taking the job as Trump's director of OMB. And then later he would become uh, the head of the Consumer Bureau. Basically, between him and Jared and three randos at Mar-a-Lago who are running Veterans Affairs, that is Trump's entire domestic policy staff. So Mulvaney in 2016, was saying these outrageous things. Now, it is true that simply saying any outrageous thing does not disqualify you from being a member of the Trump cabinet. For instance, one member of the Trump cabinet has said that the pyramids were used to house grain, and he is the cabinet member in charge of housing, by the way. But we all know that Trump is extremely sensitive to criticism and that he prizes loyalty above all else, though he may be ill-equipped at correctly assessing who is loyal, see Michael Cohen. But now that we know that Mick Mulvaney has been a vocal Trump critic speaking into microphones saying that he does not like Trump, perhaps we could have avoided Mick Mulvaney, OMB director. And you know, he was the guy who shepherded through the Trump administration's only legislative achievement. The tax bill, not 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 achievement to people who actually know how budgets are balanced, but achievement to most of the Republican Party. And then he was named to head the uh, Bureau of Consumer Protection. That's one of those where you have to squint to see words that aren't there. And now he's going to be chief of staff. We could have prevented this if only we had planted the seed in Trump's head that this guy is a critic and is laughing at you. And there was CNN chuckling about their fine investigative unit, the K-Files, that found the tape eventually. First of all, we should note that's from the K-File. So if you've said something ever out loud, know that the K-File will find find it. it. Yeah, two years later. On the show today, I spiel about my dad and an unusual friendship with a basketball player. But first, with the conviction of the murderer of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville, Virginia, the alt-right has come under scrutiny again. For a couple years, it seemed like they were a rising and disturbing force in American politics. Still disturbing, it is time to correctly assess just how rising they are. What is the state of the alt-right? So joining me next is George Hawley, is a professor at the University of Alabama, and he is the author of The Alt-Right, What Everyone Needs to Know. The greatest trick the alt-right ever pulled was convincing the world they were but a frog meme. George Hawley is an associate professor of political science at the University of Alabama. He studies and has written extensively about the alt-right. I would say he is, if not the leading, certainly among America's leading authority on the alt-right. He speaks with authority, but not necessarily extreme alarmism. For instance, as you'll hear, he thinks that the alt-right's influence is waning. His new book is called The Alt-Right, What Everyone Needs to Know, and it is written in a very reader-friendly forum. A bunch of questions, questions as recondite as who is Ravillo P. Oliver, and questions as, well, I think basic to you and me as what is a meme. George Hawley joins us now. Hello, how are you? Very well, thanks. So thanks for joining me and essentially lay out 
the terms and where the idea of the alt-right comes from, if it comes, I know it's an amalgam of kind of different ideas, but what's at its core and in a word or two, what would its mission statement be, if you will? Sure. The alt-right is short for alternative rights, and it's a term that was first introduced into the public discourse around 2008. And it's evolved considerably over that period, waxing and waning in popularity. But I would say that at its core, the the main ideologues of the alt-right could be described as white nationalists. And at its very broadest definition, I'd say that its main goal is to make explicit and open white identity politics part of the mainstream discussion to end the the previous suppression of explicit white identity politics. So in defining the alt-right, I mean, this comes up, how do they differ from the KKK? How do they differ from neo-Nazis? Are those the right questions to ask, do you think? I think so. Um, because for a while, I think the alt-right did come across as a genuinely you know, new and distinct phenomenon. Though I think as it evolved, especially over the last couple of years, it became more and more like its earlier radical predecessors on the extreme right. So I would say that uh, the KKK would probably differ from the alt-right in that the KKK was also interested in religion in a way that the alt-right mostly is not. That is, mm-hmm. the KKK was not just anti-black and anti-Jewish, it was also anti-Catholic. So the alt-right uh, is not sort of an explicitly Protestant movement. In fact, I'd say it's sort of a post-religious movement in a way that the KKK never was. Is, is the alt-right anti-Semitic? Yes. I'd say that is a, a key element of the alt-right, even if there may be people who describe themselves as alt-right who, who don't view themselves as anti-Semites. I'd say that that is a, a, key, a key aspect of the alt-right. Well, uh, what I hear is, you know, the number one argument to that is, well, look at Andrew Breitbart. He was Jewish. Well, I would say that Breitbart represented a different variety of the right than the alt-right. That is, I don't think that if Breitbart were alive today, he would identify as the alt-right or that the alt-right necessarily views Andrew Breitbart as being a major influence on them. Um, I tend to make a distinction between the alt-right and the sort of broader right-wing populism, which represents a much larger phenomenon in American life than the alt-right, and I would put uh, Breitbart in uh, that latter category. And I'm not making these distinctions to defend any particular side here, but if we define the alt-right as including anyone who is a fan of, say, Breitbart, then suddenly we're defining the alt-right as a much, much bigger phenomenon than it actually is. Um, What about, so I asked you, are they anti-Semitic? Are they anti-gay? Um, for the most part, yes, but I would say that because it's a predominantly post-religious movement, that is, they're not really, um, you know, making their arguments in the same way that, say, the religious right used to, I don't think that the gay question is one that is at the top of their priority list. Where does Milo fit in? Because, you know, his brand is, I'm so flamboyantly gay, and yet it seems like most of the things he says um, would appeal to the alt-right. Well, Milo occupied another separate space on what was called the uh, so-called alt-light, which would also include people like, say, Gavin McGinnis and um, perhaps uh, other people at Breitbart as well, who kind of flirted with all of the alt-right talking points and memes, but always were careful to stop short of describing themselves as white nationalists and always made sure to disavow people 
to the right of themselves. And so there was a period where the real hardcore of the alt-right, the people like Andrew Anglin, for example, really despised um, Milo Yiannopoulos. Then when he attempted to rebrand himself as kind of a mainstream conservative after the election, which, as we all know, ended up in failure, he kind of has become a non-entity, especially now that he's been deplatformed from so many places. I think the Milo's moment as a significant figure is, is probably behind us. So if it quote unquote worked or I, I'll say it that. While I enjoy the cons- or am interested in the conservative thoughts of conservative thinkers and also think all sorts of different opinions should flourish, I'll just flat out say that Milo Yiannopoulos was the kind had almost only loathsome opinions and seemed to seem to favor them just because they would upset people. Okay, so with that said, if we can say that the deplatforming of Milo quote unquote worked. Could it work with quieting these other voices in the alt-right? And if not, why not? I think to a significant significant extent, it already has worked very well in that uh, being booted off of places like YouTube and Twitter and various other platforms has really hindered the alt-right's ability to spread its message. And perhaps even more important than that is the degree to which alt-right fledgling organizations, such as those that ever really existed, have mostly been denied their ability to raise money online. You know, so many of them have been booted from things like PayPal, for example, and there's no way to process um, money or to run successful fundraisers. So it's the extreme right is now on a budget that's even more shoestring than it had been a few years ago. So I think the narrative in – it takes probably a couple years to catch up to whatever phenomenon is out there. And I think right now as we speak in, in late 2018, the narrative is that the internet is unpoliceable and evidence of that is the rise of these groups that, you know, not just the mainstream but most normal people didn't even know were talking to each other, didn't even know were powerful, but then shockingly – Uh, We found out with such events as the rally in Charlottesville that they are. And so the narrative is there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. There's nothing you could do. This is just going to be the way of the world. And the media climate that we have now is the Wild West and unenforceable. But you're saying that's not true. You're saying that not very complex solutions, just denying them the uh, platform and denying them funding. You're saying that works. I think so. I mean, it's not a panacea. Obviously, the sentiments that drive these movements still exist, but um, this they've definitely been on their heels um, for the past year, largely because of their inability to access public spaces online. The innovation of the alt-right was to take their message into the public space. So it wasn't just a sort of an insular movement in the way it had been before by um, making their presence known on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook and making sure that they had constant engagement with public figures and, um, you know, private individuals as much as possible getting their message out there. Before the alt-right, white nationalism was always on the internet. It's been on the internet since the internet existed. But previously, it was very much relegated to places like Stormfront, for mm-hmm. example, or uh, Vanguard News Network, or some of the other extreme right forums, where if you wanted to find that sort of material, you fairly easily could. But if you weren't looking for it, 
Um, you might not even know it existed, or if you came across it, you could just easily leave. Do you think that uh, the media in general overstated the cleverness of the alt-right? Or just talk about that, because that again, that's another narrative. They know what they're doing. They're running circles around the gatekeepers. They understand the internet. They understand the way uh, young people are communicating now. Was that overstated, or was that right? Um, yes and no. I think that it got overstated. This has been a, a tactic that's been used by the extreme right. That was the, the logic of the American Nazi Party, that you know they would use the most outrageous extreme imagery and words to draw attention. And then once they have people's attention, even though the media is denouncing them, they still have that platform to make themselves known in a way that they couldn't before. And then the alt-right largely tried to do the same thing. Um, and it didn't work for the alt-right, really, because what they did manage to do is by drawing all this attention to themselves was sort of bring the the hammer down on on their own movement. That is, if they had remained sort of an obscure Internet subculture, there probably would not have been the same push to uh, get them out of social media and cut out of uh, payment processors and that sort of thing. I defer to your expertise on this, but... How did the alt-right help Trump get elected? They're a force multiplier in terms of disinformation. So a lie that appeals to them that he says will get out there. They also put ideas in his head. You know, we saw him and his sons retweeting alt-right accounts. So uh, it's clear that they influenced some of his thinking. Uh, The third way is that just in terms of The sheer amount of noise out there, I think, played into Trump's agenda, it just being hard to concentrate on what was real and what was not. And they played certainly a part in that, just just creating a lot of static and trying to figure out, is Uranium One something to worry about or not? So again, I, I agree. I can't quantify it, but it seemed like they did have some effect. Yes, and I, what I would say is that if the, even though the alt-right was not indispensable to Trump, uh, he was indispensable to them. That is, yeah. you know, prior to mid-2015 when he announced his campaign with his speech about Mexican immigrants, the far right really in America really had very little interest in partisan presidential politics. That is, the extreme right was not energized by Mitt Romney or by John McCain. That that was uh, viewed as something that was sort of outside uh, of their interests in that who won those those elections didn't really make a difference. But the fact that they saw Donald Trump as being, you know, at least adjacent to their views in some ways, even if they knew he wasn't really one of them, you know, was a very motivating thing for the extreme right, which is why we saw, you know, such a such rapid growth, I think, during that during that window. If you were to advise uh, Republicans or conservatives and their goal is not to be better people or offer better policies, their goal is to consistently win elections. What should their attitudes towards the alt-right be, towards dog whistle racism in general be, towards being the party of white voters? What what should their attitudes be? How should they execute those attitudes? Well, I think there is a way, I think, to keep sort of the new coalition that Trump was starting to build without going to the extreme right. Um, I don't think that the Republican Party took advantage of the window that they were given after the 2016 election. I think there was a real chance that they could have reoriented themselves to being a more kind of working class party by focusing on things like infrastructure or on the opioid epidemic or some of these other things that 
really do matter to a lot of working people of all races. Um, and instead of that, they just gave you know Paul Ryan a a blank check to pursue the policies that had been political losers for several cycles in a row. So my advice would be to not do what they have been doing these past two years to sort of get back to the good elements of Trumpian populism that could resonate with a larger portion of the population. And you write for the American conservative. You do give this advice. This is not just a hypothetical that I've asked you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wrote an op-ed in uh, the New York Times, actually, after the election, um, suggesting that they do just this. Um, Though, uh, you know, why would they listen to me? Well, I don't know. I mean, do you I self-identify as conservative or Republican? Uh, I don't know. I, I usually describe myself as more of a more of a moderate. Um, but me too. It's funny it's is, really it's really people hate that label. I don't know why. People yeah, hate when well, you say I, that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, what's funny is I started writing for the American Conservative after a lot of efforts I made to you know send out um, op eds to several center left. Um, publications, you know, either didn't respond at all or said no thanks. So I kind of ended up writing for these center-right publications kind of um, because they were the ones who who accepted what I submitted. How do you, this is more of a personal question, but how do you uh, approach your work just from a mental health standpoint? Do you have to worry about that? Are there moments you have to totally unplug because it disgusts you? Or are you fascinated by it all the time as an anthropologist would be? Well, I, or maybe there's a third one, like you're a policeman and you're doing your job and you're saving society. Well, I'm, I wouldn't say anything that grandiose. What I tend to do is just move back and forth between projects. That is, um, between two books that I wrote on the extreme right, I wrote a totally different book on the demographic fate of various religious denominations. I will note, though, that I am not doing any more work on uh, the alt-right or related movements anytime in the near future. This, uh, I suspect that this book is the last um, on this specific subject that I will be working on for a very long time. George Hawley teaches political science at the University of Alabama. He is the author of the new book, The Alt-Right, What Everyone Needs to Know. Thank you, George. Thank you. And now, the spiel. Perhaps this week you came across the delightful story of Shirley Wong, who reported for the public radio program Only a Game about her dad and his friend. He told me he knew about Charles Barkley long before he met him. Well, yeah, he's a, you know, top 50 players in in the history of the NBA. For many years, he was the number two guy right after Michael Jordan. Whenever we attended dinner parties, my dad would talk about his friend, Charles Barkley. And indeed, Barkley and Lin Wong, a cat litter scientist from Iowa, yeah, yeah, exactly, they actually were pretty good friends. Wong checked in with Barkley to figure out how her kind of dorky dad became friends with one of the world's most famous basketball players. (laughs) It was like one of the most random things yeah, I was on business trip and stayed in one of the hotels and was working in the lobby, and I, I saw Charles Barkley. I was in Sacramento speaking at a, a charity event. So I just went to say hi. I don't want to take a picture with him. I was just sitting at the bar, and 
me and your dad were the only two people in there. And we just sit down and started talking. <laughs> He's a super nice guy. And before we knew it, we looked at each other like, yo, man, I'm hungry. And we said, well, let's go to dinner. It turned into a two-hour dinner. And then we actually went back to the bar, just sit there and talk for another couple hours. And the rest is history. Well, Wong family history. And then Shirley's dad passed away. That was an old interview that she was playing. And Barkley eulogized him at his funeral. Now, I have to say, I have met Charles Barkley a couple of times, one time at the treadmill of a hotel during a hurricane, and he is the second most outgoing celebrity I've ever met. I love the guy. Number one, by the way, was Patty Scalfa. But this story, this Charles Barkley and Lynn Wong story, inspired in me to recount a bit of Pesca family lore. I do not wish to one-up the Wongs, and I know Barkley and the Wong family is getting all the attention, and they should, but we Pescas have a connection to basketball greatness too. So now it is time for me to share with you this story. My dad was besties with Meadowlark Lemon. Whenever my dad would see the antics of Meadowlark Lemon, he would say, you know, that's my friend Meadow. And I would say, first of all, his name is Meadowlark. You can't just call him Meadow. That's like calling LeBron James Leb. And don't tell me you know him. My dad would just laugh and subtly shake his head. No, I call him Meadow. He told me to, my dad would say, and I knew him very well. In fact, without my friend Meadow Lemon, you might not even be here. Okay, dad, sure, I'd say. I knew he'd been talking up this Meadowlark Lemon connection since I was a kid. And I know all the guys down at the foundry used to rip him something terrible on account of his phantasmagorical reveries. But these days... Most of Dad's old friends have moved away, and he can't get the Netflix to work right. So recently, on a cool summer night, as the evening air barely moved the branches of that old whippoorwill tree, I indulged him. Go ahead, Dad, I said. Tell me about your friendship with Meadowlark Lemon. Okay, son, he said. But remember, you asked. The year was 1960, and my cousin Richie and I were in Rome on vacation. We were in the main train station there, and we heard a porter call out, Meadowlark! Meadowlark! I turned to Richie, and I said, Richie, do you think they could mean Meadowlark Lemon? I knew who Meadowlark Lemon was, because he was already a pretty big star with the Globetrotters back then. No way, said Richie. Maybe Meadowlark Stanakovich or Meadowlark Flam, but it can't be Meadowlark Lemon. Still, I was intrigued. So I went to see who would respond to the porter's call. And sure enough, a tall black guy walked up to the porter and collected his bags. So I approached him and I asked him, Are you Meadowlark Lemon? Uh, no, sir, he said. I'm Walt Bellamy. <laughs> but wait, I responded. Walt Bellamy, though a member of the 1960 Olympic team here in Rome, is 6'11 and you're only 6'3 max. Yeah, kid, you got me, said the man I would come to know as Meadow. Here's the deal. And then Meadowlark Lemon told my dad the following. The USA basketball team was loaded. They had Jerry Lucas. They had Bells. That's what they called Bellamy. They had Zeke. That's what they called Jerry West. They had the Big O. That's what they called Oscar Robertson. They had Dr. Dish. That's what they called Terry Dissinger, which was funny because he went on to become an orthodontist. And Meadowlark said to my dad, well, I'll let him take up the story. So he says, these guys, they play all the games. 
But they don't want to go to the events and the shoot-arounds, so they uh, hired some other players, good Americans, who are all really good basketball players, who walk the walk, who talk the talk, and no one knows the difference. Plus, Meadowlock told me, I'll meet the Globetrotters in Lucerne when the games are over. So I vowed to keep the secret. And over the next few weeks, I'd see Meadowlock, and me and Richie would just nod, because we knew the score. On the way out of town, wouldn't you know it, Meadowlock was on our flight, and he says to us, Hey, guys, you were really good at keeping the secret. If you'd accept some tickets, I would love for you to be my guest at a few Globetrotter games. We said yes, and from there, a friendship was born. Let me tell you, we had great seats at that game. I believe they won a squeaker over the generals that night, and Meadowlock told me, hey, call me Meadow. And then Meadow said, hey, Joe, if you're ever on vacation and the Globetrotters are in the town you're in, give me a call. And so I did. Over the years... I went on to see Meadow and the Globetrotters at the Hofheist Pavilion in Houston, the Imperial Amphitheater in Chicago, the Kemper Arena in KC, Sacramento's Arco Arena, the Cincinnati Gardens, the Omaha Civic Center, the Sheboygan Musical Auditorium in Armory. Did you ever see him at the Cow Palace, I asked? No, but I saw him at the War Memorial Gym, my dad said. And I saw him at the McElroy Auditorium, also known as the Hippodrome in Waterloo, Iowa. I saw him at Curtis Hicks Hall. I saw him at the Citadel Armory. But dad, did you ever? I'm not done. In Canada, there was the Ottawa Civic Center. There was Hamilton's Central Memorial Recreational Center. There was Arena de Quebec. And once, on our honeymoon with your mom, the Yoyogi National Gymnasium in Tokyo. I saw him at the Nassau Veterans Memorial. Dad, I said, please do not list all the arenas. I want to know, what did you guys bond over? What did you talk about? Well, Meadow was really into geography, having traveled around a lot, and he wanted to produce an educational film strip for kids. You're kidding. No, I'm not. I advised him to do so, and so he did. When you go up farther toward the North Pole, which some people say is the top, you are going north. If you go in the other direction, you are going south. Wow, you told him to do that? Yeah, and what I specifically told him was put in more sound effects. He said, we got plenty, and I said, Meadow, I know kids. You were just a baby at the time, but you loved sound effects. So he made them put in even more sound effects. You've heard of the North and South Pole. Well, the North Pole is at the north end of the axis, and the South Pole is at the south end of the axis. Of course, these poles are not to be confused with flag poles, phone poles, pineapples, fishing poles, and tadpoles. Yeah, I thought it was a good way for him to make up for all those Gilligan's Islands episodes, those Rock Kids brains. But, you know, 1980-something, he did do the reunion special. Friday, the original castaways are back in an all-new adventure, the Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. Well, what else did you talk about besides basketball, I asked. Well, he always asked after my cousin Richie. He was good that way. And I'd ask him about all the world leaders he met. I'd say, have you really met Deng Xiaoping? And he said, sure. And I said, what was Helmut Kohl like? And he said, he was cool, but not as cool as Helmut Schmidt. I mean, this is a guy who knew both helmets. What a life. So you were friends with Meadowlark for his whole life? Well, almost, my dad would say. As you know, he was an evangelical minister, which was fine. But one day I pressed him on his teachings about the transubstantiation of the Eucharist. And he said that communion was not part of his faith tradition. And that bothered you? Did it bother me? Was I bothered? I wouldn't say bothered, but it was a point of contention. Anyway, he called me years later and he said, Joe, 
let's not have this theological squabble. And he offered me tickets to, I think it was the Teaneck Armory, though it might have been Pittsburgh's Motor Square Garden, or maybe the Hollywood Sportatorium in Pembroke Pines, or maybe it was the Dallas Sportatorium. No, wait, it could have been the Tampa Sportatorium. Anyway, Meadow and I met up at some Sportatorium somewhere, and we were really good after that. In fact, when he was inducted into the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame, don't tell me he invited you to the induction. No, but he did get me tickets the next day to a Globetrotters game at the Springfield Civic Arena. Or maybe it was the Worcester Civic Center. Neil, which one was it? I don't know, Joe, my mom said. I think you're making this all up. Everything you said is on his Wikipedia page. I'm looking it up now. Well, Meadowlark Lemon died in 2015. And given the depth and resonance of their relationship, my dad took it surprisingly well. I do remember one night, though, when we as a family were out for dinner at one of my dad's favorite Italian restaurants, and he ordered a full pitcher of water. Bring me the whole thing, he said to the waiter. And when the waiter came over, he took that metal pitcher from his hands, and he turned to my mother and me, and he threw it on us. But it wasn't water. It was just confetti. Where did you learn that? My mom asked. Just reading Wikipedia, I guess, my dad said, and turned to me with a wink because I think we both knew what was up. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, whose dads were close with Ralph Sampson and Akeem Olajuwon. Weirdly, Pierre and Daniel didn't realize that until Pierre had a housewarming party and two seven-foot-tall NBA legends showed up and realized they had friends in common. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. Her dad got Gar Heard out of jury duty once, and he's who inspired TJ to get into podcasting. The gist. Bill Wennington lit a candle at my bar mitzvah. Oom peru de peru du peru, and thanks for listening.